Welcome back to the program. We often throw terms around in our political and geopolitical debates like capitalist and communist and oligarchs and class divide. But very few who use these hot button terms truly understand the deep essence of what they mean. One of those who does understand is my guest, Bill Browder. He rebelled against communism as a teenager, became a capitalist, and then made millions in Vladimir Putin's Russia. What he didn't know was just what kind of price he would pay for that within the ever-entangling web of Putin, oligarchs, and a system 180 degrees from our own, a system governed by men and not by laws. The result was the brutal death of Brower's lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, and Brower's still ongoing quest for justice. The story is all told in his new book, Red Notice. Bill Browder is the founder and CEO of Hermitage Capital Management, which was the largest foreign investment fund in Russia until 2005. It is my pleasure to welcome Bill Browder to the program to talk about Red Notice, a true story of high finance, murder, and one man's fight for justice. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. Talk a little bit about when you first went to Russia in 1996. What was the decision that you made to go there? Well, so I, I have a very unusual family background. My, my grandfather, um, who's American, um, was the, became the head of the American Communist Party for, from 1932 to 1945. He was then expelled from the Communist Party. He was then persecuted um, as a communist during the McCarthy era. And so when I, I was born in, in the mid-1960s, and when I was going through my teenage rebellion in the 1970s, I thought to myself, what's the best way of rebelling from a family of communists? And for me, the idea was to put on a suit and tie and become a capitalist. There was nothing that would cause my family more stress than that. And so that's what I set out to do. I, uh, I went to um, uh, Stanford Business School, and I graduated in 1989, which was the year that the Berlin Wall came down. And as I was looking for my, the next step in my uh, uh, career, I, I had this epiphany, which was if my grandfather was the biggest communist in America, and the Berlin Wall has just come down, I'm going to try to become the biggest capitalist in Eastern Europe. And so I set out to do that. And fast forward a few years, um, I moved to Moscow in 1996 to set up an investment fund. The, the, Russian, uh, the, the, the Russian government, a couple years earlier, had decided in their own efforts to go from communism to capitalism, they would, they would basically give away or privatize all the state companies, all the oil companies, all the metals companies, etc. Um, they basically do that for free. So they gave all this stuff away. Um, all these shares started trading in the market. I did a, an evaluation of the shares, and they were trading at about a 99.7% discount to the Western companies, similar companies. And so I set up this investment fund called the Hermitage Fund to invest in this stuff. I moved to Moscow. I started small, and then it started to grow. Of course, when you moved to Moscow and got involved in all of this, it truly was the Wild West. I mean, not only were there no laws and regulations, there was no framework, no infrastructure to do many of the things that, that you were engaged in. Exactly. So, so here, here you, it, it was like the, the Russians, when they went, so they, they, it was very hasty, this decision to go from communism to capitalism and give everything away for free. And, and it, it was basically like building a house very quickly, and nobody bothered to put in the electricity and plumbing. And in, in this case, the electricity and plumbing were rules, uh, property rights, um, regulations, etc. 
which we all take for granted in the West. But imagine, uh, you know, th- this is th- this is like the Wild West out in Russia, or the Wild East, I should say, where it was every man for himself. You, you could own a share of a company, but that didn't mean anything. Guys were stealing like you've never seen before. It was just uh, absolute chaos. And that's why everything was so cheap. It traded at this big discount because nobody knew what was what and what you might get and what might be stolen from you, etc. But, um, but there it was, sort of the Wild East. And the stealing, in many ways, was the cost of doing business. You saw that immediately. You understood that as a predicate to doing business over there at the time. Well, so, so my thought was this, that I thought, okay, you know, we're buying in at such low, low prices that if for some reason things go from horrible to bad, um, it doesn't have to get good or even okay, just horrible to bad or even horrible to very bad, um, you go from a 99.7% uh, discount to a 99% discount or a 90% discount, and, and you make many times your money. And so I was ready for a lot of bad things to happen, um, uh, but, but I, I guess I wasn't ready for how bad things were when, when it really did start happening. One of the key turning points in this story was really in 2003, because up until 2003, your goals and your efforts to stem corruption and the efforts of other people there to stem corruption were pretty much in line with what the government wanted to do. The government had changed from Yeltsin to Putin over this period of time, and even Putin at that point wanted to get a handle on the oligarchs. But in 2003, all that changed. What happened? Well, so, so when Putin first came to power in, in uh, year 2000, when he became the president, he, his power was very limited because all the, the power had been stolen from him by these oligarchs. You know, he had the official role of the president, but everyone was, you know, these oligarchs were like employing, you know, generals in the army and, and police officers on their private staff. And so the, the whole state was sort of dysfunctional and, and everything was sort of diffused away from the presidency. And so Putin... For, for a while, um, uh, really wanted to, to consolidate power, and I was busy attacking the oligarchs by exposing their corruption. And so every time I had to expose one of his enemies, um, uh, he would go in for, for the kill, um, not literally, but, but sort of um, figuratively. And so he, he ended up in a situ- we ended up in a situation where for, for a number of years, for about three and a half years, our interests were totally aligned as I was trying to stop the stealing in the companies. But then, as you say, in 2003... Putin went after the biggest oligarch in Russia. There was a man named Michael Hordakovsky. He was the owner of a big oil company called Yukos, and he was worth somewhere between 10 and $20 billion. And Putin arrested him one day in October of 2003. We didn't know whether he was going to be uh, uh, for, for one day in jail or two days. Everyone thought a rich guy, he's not going to be in jail for very long. And he was in jail and stayed in jail for one day, two days, a week, a month. And they finally put him on trial and they allowed the television cameras to film the richest man in Russia sitting in a cage. And, and, and you can't even imagine the psychological impact this had on the 17th richest guy in Russia and the 15th richest guy who all watched this and, and saw this guy who was far better, more talented, and richer um, than them sitting in a cage because of Putin. And they all scurried back to the Kremlin and said, Vladimir, what do we have to do to, so we don't sit in a cage? And Putin said, very simple, 50%. I can't prove it's 50%. I wasn't there to witness it. But what I can prove is that the oligarchs' behavior and Putin's behavior towards the oligarchs all changed after Hordakovsky was arrested. And what happened was instead of behaving as adversary to the oligarchs, Putin behaved as their business partner. 
And I personally believe that he became the richest man in the world because they had to transfer a lot of their assets. So at that point, everything changed. Was this something that was done intentionally by Putin when he made this arrest? Or was this the, the unintended consequence of the way the situation evolved? No, I, I believe that, that, that Putin was planning this all along. Um, and the way Putin operates is he doesn't have the, the people working for him are, are not all that clever. He doesn't have that many good uh, people to actually do the work that he needs done for all these types of repressions. And so he's got to take a, a, a very small talent pool um, and apply it very, very um, selectively towards people. And so he picks he, what he does is he, he goes out and looks for symbols. So he picks the richest richest oligarch and makes him a symbol so everybody else then falls into a line into line or he, he picks a uh, you know one of the most um, uh, uh, feisty investigative reporters and murders them or whatever so that everybody else then then panics and, and starts uh, uh, basically kowtowing to Putin and and so I believe everything he does he does with a purpose and I think his purpose has been to basically get rid of political dissent and become very wealthy himself. Or I should maybe put this other way around. His main objective is to get wealthy, and he, and he wants to get rid of political dissent so he can use his power to become wealthy. Talk a little bit about how you were viewing this at the time, because as you said before, you understood that the chaos and the undervaluing was inherent in the process, and that if things went from 99% chaotic to 97% chaotic, you could still make money. Even though there was theft going on on the part of the oligarchs, arguably you and your investors could still make money. Why did you care that the theft was going on? Well, it's very straightforward. So if I own a, a share of a company and all the money is being stolen out of the company, then our shares don't go up in value. If I can somehow expose the corruption, and, so the, and, and, and by doing so it stops the stealing, then instead of the, the money being stolen, it stays in the company and the share price goes up. And I can tell you that, that, we, that the value of our, of our investments went up dramatically. Um, if you had been in the fund on day one and stayed all the way through to 2005, you would have made something like 30-some-odd times your money, not percent, times your money. And so it was, it was a hugely lucrative place to be, um, and, and it was actually a very lucrative thing to do, to, to be a shareholder activist, to fight, fight against the, the corruption. And it was also very morally um, exciting. We had a huge esprit de corps in our office when we would expose the bad guys. We'd be high-fiving each other throughout the office as the, as the Wall Street Journal published the article bringing all this stuff out into the open. But obviously, um, we were doing it then before and then after. We were doing it before Putin um, came to terms with the oligarchs and he was helping us. But then after he, came, after he became a business partner with the oligarchs, we weren't going after his enemies anymore. We were going after his own personal financial interests, and that's when everything changed. And what concerns did you and your colleagues have initially in terms of the danger and the, the situation you were putting yourself in once Putin was allied with the oligarchs? Well, you know, the thing about it is that if we had been too sensitized to the danger, we would have never, first of all, I probably wouldn't have gone to Russia in the first place. And secondly, I would have never taken them on in the first place. And so I kind of um, disconnected my danger um, uh, antenna in order to, to start doing the stuff that I was doing. And so I wasn't very attuned to what, 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 um, what was eventually going to become very dangerous, which was I, you know, I wasn't reading the tea leaves as, as I should have been to see that, that everything had changed. Had I done that, probably I would have behaved differently. 
And were there others in Russia at the time that were looking at it from the same perspective that you were, that, that were concerned about, one, trying to curb the theft on the part of the oligarchs and, and really working towards enhancing the investments you had made? Well, the, 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 almost everybody who was in, involved in the stock market, there were many investors from all over the world, everybody loved me for doing this because I was doing the heavy lifting and they were getting the economic benefit. So let's say that I own 1% of Gazprom and, and I'm fighting to stop the corruption and there's 25% owned by many thousands of other investors, they're getting the same benefit that I am of stopping the corruption. So I was a, a local hero in the market, but nobody else wanted to stick their head above the parapet and do what I was doing. And so... Uh, uh, you know, people would, were happy to have me do it, but nobody wanted to, to sort of openly join me. And, of course, the press was very happy with what you were doing because you were providing them with, with information. You mentioned the Wall Street Journal before both the international press and the, and the Russian press. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, you know, most journalists have to spend a lot of time doing their own research. And imagine you're a journalist sitting in Moscow and, and some guy comes, comes along and he, he plops a, a nice, well-presented PowerPoint dossier on your desk with all this important... Uh, shocking information about the most important strategic companies in the country, and it's all there with backup information to verify it. I've just saved that guy three months' worth of work, and so uh, I was uh, uh, I, I was definitely uh, making the journalists' lives easier. And so it was very symbiotic. You know, from from my perspective, they had the outlet for this information to get out into the open, which I didn't have. And from their perspective, I was doing all this great research, which um, which they probably didn't wouldn't have the research the resources to do anyways. Talk a little bit about what transpired between 2003 and 2005 when you were expelled from the country. Well, so, so as we said, Putin um, becomes uh, part business partners with the oligarchs. I'm still um, uh, hammering away, uh, exposing corruption at Gazprom, the largest gas company in Russia and, and in the world, uh, another oil company in Russia, which has a name that no one will remember from this conversation called Surgut Neftegas, <laughs> and then an oil pipeline company called Transneft. And, um, and these were all sort of important uh, strategic companies that, that were connected to the Kremlin uh, intimately. I was going after them viciously. Um, and then one day I was flying back to Moscow from a, a weekend trip to London, which I had taken many times before. And I was stopped at um, Sheremetyevo 2 Airport, which, is the main, which was the main international airport at the time. Um, I was then uh, grabbed by four... Um, uh, uniformed uh, officers taken down to the detention center of the airport, kept there for 15 hours overnight, not knowing whether I was being arrested or deported. And then finally at 11 a.m. the next morning, they uh, uh, took me away, um, put me on the airplane, and then sent me back to London um, and declared me a threat to national security, never to return to Russia again. And the only way you were able to continue work inside Russia, essentially, was through your lawyer. Talk about that, who he was. Well, so, so one step in between. So, so we, once I was kicked out, I said to myself, I don't want these guys to, um, the Russians, when they turn on you, they don't do it mildly, they do so with extreme prejudice. I don't want these guys to cause me, my people, my, my uh, clients any harm. And so we, we liquidated all of our assets, and I evacuated all my staff, and I thought, okay, um, uh, we're all done with Russia. Then all of a sudden, um, after I, I liquidated everything, the police raid my office um, in Moscow. I kept an office there, and I still have one secretary. They, the police raid my office, and they raid the office of an American law firm that I had, and um, uh, that I was, the law firm was doing business, business with us or doing law, legal work for us. 
the police seize the, um, all the stamp seals and certificates for our investment holding companies, the companies through which we had invested all of our money in Russia. And, um, and the next thing we know, we no longer own our investment holding companies. They've been using, the, using documents seized by the police. The companies have been fraudulently transferred into the name of a man who had been convicted of murder and let out of jail early by the police, presumably to put his name on, on these things. And, and I was just shocked because there, there was no economic interest for me because we had gotten our money out. But I thought if the police are involved in doing this type of theft, um, God knows what kind of legal problems we, we were going to have. And so I hired a young lawyer named Sergei Magnitsky. Sergei worked for an American law firm. He was 35 years old. And he's one of the most competent people I knew in, in, in Russia. He was one of these characters who he could do 10 things in the time it took a normal person to do one. He just had a, just a genius brain on his head and a, and a really just solid guy. So I hired him to look into this whole, into this whole thing. And he came back um, with, with having done his investigation, and he came to two conclusions. One was that the um, police um, wanted to seize all of our assets, all of our money, but because we had taken our money out after I'd been expelled, um, even after raiding all of our banks and so on, they, there was nothing there for them to, to get. But then he found out something which, which, which was truly shocking for everybody involved, which was that when they couldn't get our money, what the, um, what the police did was they took our stolen companies, the companies that we used to own, that they, that they stole from us through, this, through these documents, and they got these companies, um, and, I, and I should point out, these companies in the previous year had paid $230 million of taxes. And so the, the, this group of criminals took these companies, and they went to the tax authorities, and with a bunch of forgeries, they applied for a tax refund. They asked for the $230 million of, of taxes that we paid in the previous year to the Russian government. They asked for it to be refunded. And they applied for this tax refund on the 23rd of December 2007. So this was two days before Christmas. It was the largest tax refund in the history of Russia, and it was awarded one day later on Christmas Eve, no questions asked. So, and, and, so I, just, just, just to make it clear, this wasn't my money they stole. These people, these group of crooked police officers, criminals, and now obviously tax, tax officers, stole from their own government $230 million. It was, it was the most shocking thing that any of us could, could have ever discovered. And, and Sergei, who was, who was a real patriot um, and, a, and, a, and a really decent guy, said, this is just unbelievable. This couldn't have been approved by Putin. He couldn't have approved stealing his own people, stealing all this money from their own government. He might have approved stealing from us, but not, not from their own government. And so we, we wrote criminal complaints and, and publicized the whole thing, expecting that the good guys would get the bad guys, and that would be the end of the story. But it turned out that there were no good guys in this story, just bad guys. And instead of doing any of that, they, they opened up criminal cases against all of our lawyers. And at this point, in addition to Sergey, we had six other lawyers. And so I went to all these guys and I said, you, you, you have to leave Russia and come to safety. I'll take care of it. I'll pay for it. I'll keep you uh, uh, solvent. Um, but, but we have to get you out of harm's way. And everybody left except for Sergey. And Sergey said, and he, he had this almost, he had this stubborn idealism. And he said, I, I've not broken any laws. I know the law perfectly. They can't arrest me. And moreover, these guys have stolen from my country. And so he refused to leave. He stayed in Russia. He then testified against the police officers involved. 
And then the same police officers he testified against came to his home at 8 in the morning in front of his wife and two children and arrested him and put him in pretrial detention. Were any of you, either Sergei or you or anybody else involved, surprised by this? I mean, obviously all the other lawyers, as you, as you said, left the country because they were concerned about what could happen. Sergei decided to stay. He couldn't have been surprised by the fact that he was ultimately arrested. You know, um, I, I mean, we, we, I don't think... He, he, you know, I, I think he was such an idealist that, that he was surprised. He thought, okay, if I'm arrested, then I'll file these papers, prove my innocence, and that will be the end of the story. But, but it, it, it didn't turn out to be that way. This was, this was a story that went right up to the top of the Russian government, and so he filed his appeals, they ignored his appeals, and then they started to torture him. They, they, started, they put him in, in a, a cells with 14 inmates and only eight beds and left lights on 24 hours a day to sleep-deprive him. They put him in a cell with um, no window panes and no, no heating. In December, in Moscow, he nearly froze to death. They put him in a cell with no toilet, just a hole in the floor where the sewage would bubble up. And um, every time they would do this, they'd come to him and say, if you just withdraw your, your testimony and sign a confession saying you stole the $230 million, then everything will improve. And n- nobody really knows how, how they would behave in a situation like this. I don't think Sergei knew in advance I don't know what I would have done. Um, but it turned out that Sergei had, had this incredible streak of integrity, which just came out during this, this, this adversity. And he said, no, I'm, for him, the idea of, of perjuring himself and bearing false witness was more poisonous than whatever horrific situations they subjected him to. And so he refused all that. And as, as things were getting worse and worse, he, um, he ended up getting really sick. He lost 40 pounds, developed terrible pains in his stomach and was diagnosed as having pancreatitis and gallstones and needing an operation. And uh, uh, his operation was due to, due to happen on the 1st of August, 2009. And, uh, and about a week before the operation, they came to him again with this Faustian bargain of, sign, you know, of, of, of come up with this uh, false confession and everything will be all right. He again refused. And then they abruptly moved him from a prison that had a medical facility to a prison called Butyrka, which is a maximum security hellhole in the center of Moscow, considered to be one of the worst prisons in Russia. And most significantly for Sergei, it had no medical facilities there at all. And at Butyrka, his health went completely over the edge. He, he, went, he, went in, he just went into constant agonizing pain. He was desperate for medical attention. He wrote 20 different requests in writing to every different branch of the judicial, penal, and investigation system of Russia, Every single one of his requests was either ignored or denied. And then on the night of November 16, 2009, his body finally gave out. He went into critical condition. On that night, then the, the um, officials at Butyrka Prison decided that they would um, send him to a different prison that had a medical facility. They put him in an ambulance to the, to the, to the different prison, but instead of taking him to the emergency room, at the, at the other prison, they put him in an isolation cell and then chained him to a bed, and eight riot guards with rubber batons came into the cell and beat him viciously until he died on the November 16th at the age of 37. He left a wife and two children. What, if any, communication did you have with Sergei while he was in prison? Well, this is the most um, uh, interesting part of the story, what makes this such a dramatic human rights case, is that Sergei, um, uh, he documented everything that happened to him in the form of criminal complaints against his 
his captors, his, the hostage takers. And so he, he wrote 450 complaints detailing exactly who was doing what to him, when, how, where, and why. And um, people say, well, well, how did he get those complaints out? And the interesting thing is, is that Russia is a very sort of doggedly procedural place, and nobody really cared about any of these complaints, thinking that there, nothing would ever come of them. And so he, every once a month or so, he'd give a big stack of these complaints to his lawyer. His lawyer would file them, and then we'd get copies. And even though the, the authorities rejected all of them, we had this absolutely granular um, pile of, of, of uh, testimony from Sergei about how he was abused, everything. We know everything about what happened to him. And so when he died, um, this was not some kind of plausibly deniable death. This was a, a fully provable case of torture and murder. And we expected that the people who did this would face justice. What do we know about the people that did this? In many ways, as you alluded to before, it was the bad guys stealing from the bad guys. Which bad guys were responsible? Well, what we know for sure is that the, that the police officers who were, were involved in seizing the documents were involved. We know that the tax officials um, who organized the, who approved the tax rebate were involved. Um, we know that, the, that, that there must have been a minister, a cabinet minister involved, because you can't do a $230 million tax refund overnight at Christmas Eve without the sign-off of somebody very, very high up in the whole uh, system. And then we know that lots of people inside the prison system were involved in, in torturing him, beating him, denying him medical attention, and so on. And so this is a conspiracy that involves many, many people. I, I, and, um, and, then, and then there was a cover-up afterwards. So, so actually, the, the, you know, the, the, the murder was, was heartbreaking enough, but if, if you weren't heartbreaking then, you would have been heartbroken by the time they finished with their cover-up. They, they, the Russian government then got everybody involved, all the, the prosecutor general of the country, the head of the prison system, the um, deputy interior minister, all these people sort of going publicly on the record um, saying that Sergei Magnitsky died of natural causes, that it was nobody's fault, um, that, that, that he hadn't discovered any, any type of crime. They started blaming him for, for, uh, uh, for, for various crimes. Um, and and at the, in the end of the day, this, this, the um, um, uh, cover-up went right up to Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin was at a press conference in 2012, basically after a mountain of documentary evidence and many, many objective organizations um, came to the conclusion that Sergei was, had, had not died of natural causes, that he'd been murdered. President Putin comes out at an international press conference after seven or eight people ask him questions about Magnitsky and say, Sergei Magnitsky, um, was, was, uh, there was nothing untoward about his death. Everything was normal. It's unfortunate when people die and then went on to attack me um, in the same press conference. And... Um, and so it's, it's very rare that you have, have a view of, of a head of state participating in a conspiracy to cover up a murder. And in fact, you were tried in absentia after uh, Sergei's death. And talk a little bit about what you've gone through since then. Well, so, so, here's the, so, so um, one of the things which we did after Sergei's death, which changed everything, which was that we couldn't get justice for him inside of Russia. So we chose to get justice for him outside of Russia. And, and there's not really any tools for getting justice outside of Russia, so we created our own tool, which was that the guys who do this stuff, they like to do it for money. They, they, and, they, and they don't want to keep their money in Russia because it's, it's easily if they've stolen it, it can be stolen from them. And so 
we said to ourselves, if they, all these people want to travel to the West, they'd like to buy apartments and houses and villas in the West and their kids at boarding school in the West, etc. So we said to ourselves, Let's ta- that's the one thing we can take away from them. And we came up with this idea, which became known as Magnitsky Sanctions, named after Sergei Magnitsky, which imposes visa bans and asset freezes on the people who did this. And I took this idea to Washington, and I was, and, and I, I was able to get one of the most liberal Democrats in the Senate, a man named Senator Benjamin Cardin, and one of the most conservative Republicans in the Senate, uh, Senator John McCain, and together, on a bipartisan basis, they came up with something called the Magnitsky Act. And then, um, uh, uh, and as you might imagine, there's not a great torture and murder lobby in Washington. And so uh, uh, this thing caught, caught, on, caught like wildfire and, and uh, eventually went up for vote in the Senate in November of 2012, and it was 92 to 4 in the Senate. There's very few pieces of legislation that have ever been so, so uh, bipartisan. And then 89% of the House of Representatives voted in favor of it, and, and President Obama signed it into law in December 2012. And this just drove Vladimir Putin off the, off the edge. Putin has, has never been in a situation where he's, uh, where, where he's been sort of so publicly humiliated, where he's basically been called out by the American people, the American Congress, as a, as a lying crook, where we need to sanction, um, sanction his government for this. And in response to this, he did two truly horrific things. The first, and this, this breaks my heart to this day, is in retaliation to the Magnitsky Act, he banned Americans from adopting disabled Russian orphans. And Americans have been uh, uh, generously going to Russia um, in, the, in the thousands, in the tens of thousands, and taking these, these poor, sick children out of orphanages and bringing them to America and providing them with medical care and, and um, and bringing them back to, to good health. And Putin banned these families from adopting Russian orphans, which basically was a death sentence to some of these poor children. Um, so basically, Putin was ready to protect his own corrupt officials by killing his own orphans. So that was what he did on a, on a national basis in the United States. But he was furious with me, and he was furious with the whole idea that Sergei Magnitsky was a martyr. And so he decided to have a trial a trial in which Sergei Magnitsky was on trial three years after he died in the first ever trial against a dead man in the history of Russia. Not even Stalin did that. And a trial against me as the co-defendant. And so for three months in the summer of 2013, Sergei and I were on trial. He was not there and I wasn't there. There was an empty defendant's cage. But they went through this whole ordeal, this whole show trial, and then found us both guilty. And I was sentenced to nine years in absentia, and Sergei was obviously, they couldn't sentence him to anything since they killed him. And, um, uh, and then the Russians have been trying to use Interpol, the international police organization, to have me arrested anywhere I travel. Thankfully, Interpol has wiser, wiser minds there, and um, they uh, have rejected it. But the Russians didn't give up on their first rejection, and they, they've applied three times to Interpol to have me, have me arrested, and each time Interpol had to, had to reject it. Um, the Russians are also doing all sorts of other tricks and threats and so on and so forth to me. It's a very uh, dangerous business to be in, to be an adversity to Vladimir Putin. And is your life still in danger today? Very much so. They're, they're absolutely furious with me, and they don't, they don't like to have an example of somebody who stood up to them successfully. And so um, I'm, I'm very much at risk, unfortunately. 
And what is your sense of where this goes from here? How does this play out from this point forward now that this book is out there and you're continuing to talk about this? Well, basically, we're not done with our sanctions. We need to get the Europeans to impose the same sanctions as the Americans did. We need a European Magnitsky Act because the Russians love traveling to Europe. Um, we, we also have um, uh, been conducting our own investigation into the, where the $230 million went, and we've been uh, uh, cooperating and, and helping law enforcement agencies in a number of different countries around the world who have seized some of that money. Um, and, and, then, uh, and, and then on the uh, storytelling side or, or the communication side, I've written this book, Red Notice, um, a true story of high finance murder and one man's fight for justice. And I wrote this book in a way that shouldn't just be appealing to a narrow audience. I wrote it in a way, in a style that's accessible for everybody, even if you don't care about Russia, even if you don't care about finance, even if you don't care about anything. It's, it's, it's as absolutely as gripping a, a story as John Grisham or Lee Child, and, and, but it's true. And I wrote it in, in, in that style so that, um, so that a lot of people in the world, hopefully, and I think they will um, read this, um, will, will understand that, that if they have any illusions about Putin being a normal head of state, after you finish reading this book, you'll understand that he's not. He's a mafia boss, and um, uh, you know. Uh, uh, so I'm, I'm, that, that's that's the um, uh, objective with the book. And then and then the next step is to have the um, the book adapted to a Hollywood movie because I think that's the way you you um, uh, get a good story out there so everybody can understand what's going on. And and my objective at this point is is for Sergei's memory, for his legacy, to get justice for him, and also. Um, to make sure that everybody understands what kind of man Vladimir Putin is through this horrific incident. Of course, in referring to him and talking about him as a mafia boss, and, and given your own danger, we know from from the way the mafia has operated, and of course from that famous line in The Godfather, that, that anybody can be killed anywhere. Well, not only is that a famous line in The Godfather, but that was a famous line sent to us by text message from the from, from a, an unidentified Russian number, and the only people who have unidentified, unidentified numbers are the secret police in Russia. So, you know, they're, they're um, uh, you know, I might very well not be around in the future, but um, I'm not going to let their, I'm not going to be intimidated by these people. And uh, uh, most importantly, if you read my book, you'll know who did it. And, and, and by my book being out, they'll know that you know. And so, Maybe it's a slight deterrent having all this information out in the open. You know, some people put all this stuff into a safe and say, if I ever die, bring it out. Well, I'm, I'm taking it two steps further, and I'm just publishing the book right now. Bill Browder, the book is Red Notice, a true story of high finance murder and one man's fight for justice. Bill, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 